Oh, we thank you, Lord, for the promises that are recorded for us all through your Holy Scripture, promises that go back to the Psalms, indeed, the one we just sang, Psalm 23, that the goodness and mercy of the Lord would follow us all the days of our lives so that we might dwell in the house forever of the Lord. This is an incredible promise. We thank you today that these things are yes and amen, assured and ours, without any reason to doubt in Christ Jesus our Lord whose righteousness is imputed to us upon our salvation and regeneration where the Holy Spirit counts Christ's perfect law-keeping to our account and takes our sin and puts it upon His torn back and His pierced hands and feet and the just penalty therefore satisfied in His death on the cross. We thank You that the promises of God are assured to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that this whole world bows to your authority. If not now, they soon will at your judgment seat one day. We thank you that in your patience and long-suffering, you've endured with this wicked world, God, to draw from the furthest corners of this globe a remnant, a people, an elect to praise your holy name that will outnumber, Lord Jesus, the stars of heaven one day, giving glory and praise to you for the mighty work of salvation that you have accomplished on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a God who created us, who ordained this world from the beginning and before the foundation of the world, established the means of our salvation. As we look back in your scriptures today to the very beginning where our history began as a human race, I pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, and firm Firmly fit, Lord, the foundation stones of our understanding of life and godliness according to your holy word. And let it be a great encouragement to us, your people, to call forth the message of salvation to the lost and dying, and to stand strong in a day where opposition against your holy word seems to be increasing. We take refuge again in the promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, but she will stand in the dark day when she stands on Christ her Lord and Savior. And so to your word we turn this day, open our hearts and our minds to hear and to appreciate your immortal and glorious, powerful proclamation of holiness and truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning it's such a glorious privilege and I hope that you sense a very reassuring Grace in the messages of in the message of Scripture as we turn to Genesis one, to strengthen us, to ground us, and to reinforce us in the knowledge of the truth. The aim of this morning's message is to identify what it means to be human. What is mankind, and what does it mean to be a person, to be an individual created by God and and established by Him with purpose, with direction, with creative intent? Yeah, this is a very basic question. As far as it it goes for us, each of us individually, it's hard to get more basic than this. However, it's these very questions that are up for debate in our culture today. I submit to you that we live in a day where people have allowed their hearts and minds to be overflowed to a flood of confusion, has entered in through the floodgates of cultures, uh, throwing away the foundations of the Christian worldview, and into the void then has rushed all kinds of gross, perverse confusion. And so to God's word, we turn in times like this to indeed identify what it means to be human in the first place from day six of creation. The title of this morning's message is Crown of Creation. That title comes from our worship text today, Psalm 8, where the uh, psalmist sings 
of the Lord's glory revealed in creation and chief among his creatures, <coughs> man himself, and chief among men, the Messiah who is prophesied, who would come, who is the image of God in flesh to the fullest and to the utmost and to the glorious, uh, and, and to the glorious praise of the Lord and his uh, revelation to us revealed his word um, in, in the incarnation. As we look at the uh, story of creation, we turn to Genesis chapter 1 this morning, and we behold a, the events in the second half of day 6 in verses 26 through 31. So with your Bible open to Genesis 1, would you stand once again out of reverence for the Word of God, and let us behold these words, or this word together today, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Follow me as I declare God's holy word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You may be seated. This is the word of God. <clears throat> In our text today, the record of events on the sixth day of creation continues. We've seen in verses 34 that God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. This is the record of the livestock, the creeping things, and so forth that God had made these creatures to roam the earth. This also happened on the sixth day. But there's something of a shift in our text, is there not, in verse 26? It says, then God said, let us make man. Man is one species among innumerable, almost, creatures on the earth, yet he is singled out for a reason. Why? Because he, according to the title of our message, and according to Psalm 8, is the crown of creation. There is a special emphasis for a reason in Genesis 1, 26-31, I submit even the rest of Scripture. This day then, um, or the sixth day of creation, therefore, continues, and more details are given for God's creative work on this day than any of the others as the creation week reaches a glorious crescendo with God in, in effect saving the best for last and His glory reaching this apex and this manifest showcasing of His, uh, of His amazing power in the creation of man. We reach this glorious crescendo with the creation and calling of man Himself. So significant is the work of God in relationship to humanity that Genesis 1.26, 26, 
signals a shift in theme that will remain for the duration of the entire Bible. That is to say, the focus of special revelation, the Word of God, is upon God's dealings with mankind. We don't have extended treatises or whole books of the Bible about God's dealings with cattle. We have an occasional reference, to be sure, here or there, the end of Jonah comes to mind, of God's grace and His mercy even upon the creatures. We have references by way of analogy in the New Testament that God cares about each individual sparrow. But there is no salvation plan detailed for sparrows. There's no gospel that is proclaimed to cattle. There is no epistle to the uh, schnauzers in the New Testament. That is to say that as we look at the grand scope, the big themes of Scripture, the intent, the message, and the the, uh, main idea and the focus is directed to you and I, and indeed mankind from the beginning. And there, there is a reason for this, and the reasons for this go all the way back to Genesis 1. This is the central focus of redemption, that is, God's dealings with mankind. After the soon-to-be-revealed fall, almost immediately in Genesis, man falls, yet the focus of the Scriptures remain on God's relationship with humanity as the story of redemption then, the bind back or the reconciliation, the restoration of relationship between God and man then becomes the focus of all of the Scriptures. This is, I submit, contrary to prevailing assumptions in our paganizing world today. Man is unique among all the creatures by design and intent, not by accident. Man is unique among all the creatures by God's design and by His intention, not by accident. The prevailing assumption due to misguided quasi so-called science today is that man uh, is what he is by virtue of accidents, a series of undesigned, coinc- undesigned events, the product of the interaction, cause and effect relationship of mere biology, atoms and the like, evolution, Darwinistic worldview comes to mind, materialism and so forth. All these things uh, ascribe to our being uh, basically nothing significant, nothing unique. We might be more complex, but we're no more, but we're not any more valuable um, than you know an ant, a bug, a centipede, or a tree, a plant, and, or our environment, and so forth. This is contrary to the Word of God. In the Word of God, we see that all of all God's creatures, man has a particular and unique status by design and by intent, not by accident. And the reason for this is not focused on man. It's not because we are so special in and of ourselves. I mean, that might be uh, something that we'd be attracted to in our sin. But it's because God has invested His glory chiefly in mankind above the other creatures, especially in as much as we are created in His image. The story of humanity, therefore, reveals the glory and purposes of God in high definition. The story of humanity reveals the glory and purposes of God in high definition. And so the Bible, the whole Bible, unfolds from Genesis 1, uh, 26 and following as we see this shift in emphasis. This morning I have a heading for you to explore what it means to be human from day six of creation. So let us consider this heading, Aspects of Humanity, Aspects of Humanity by Virtue of Creation. Number one, Essence. 
What kind of creatures are we? Genesis 1 answers this question. Who are we essentially? What does it essentially mean to be human? Secondly, agency. What is our position in creation? Where, what are we to do or what is the hierarchy or the authority uh, structure, the flowchart of God's purposes and our action that we ought to take in that? What role do we have in creation? What is our position? Agency. Thirdly, aspect of humanity by virtue of creation is distinctions. How are we different from each other? How are uh, you and I different from each other? How are men and women different? Specifically, we see as an example of differentiation in our text today. And then fourthly, directives, instructions, commands, God's law. How then shall we live? These, I submit, are four aspects of humanity revealed by virtue of our creation in our text today. Let us consider number one, essence. What kind of creatures are we? Notice in our text today, even in the context of as we rewind, we rewind a little bit, we see that God is making creatures according to their kind, even plants. He says in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each, and notice this phrase, according to its kind. He reiterates in verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, again, they in obedience to his voice according to their kinds. Each according to their kinds. And what does God say? There's this note of affirmation. God saw that it was good. This, was the, this all happened on the third day. Later, uh, in, on the fifth day, as another example, verse 21, God created the sea creatures. And every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, what? According to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. In a previous message, we've spoken of the architecture of reality. The very understanding of the world that we live in and as we encounter it in relationship with God, all of the basics of reality are revealed to us from the beginning of God's account of creation. And one of these uh, points in the architecture of reality is differentiation. Things are different from one another. God has created things according to their kind. They bear a unique set, different from others, of identifying characteristics. This is by God's intent and by His design. And we see right from the beginning of creation that these lines are clear and defined by virtue of God's intent, by His authority. If man moves to blur these lines of definition, and we see this all over our culture today, what is it? It is uh, evidence of his rebellion against the authority of God himself. If God proclaims, ascribes, decrees that you are thus and so, according to your kind, for us to deny that or to try to live outside those boundaries, for us to redefine them, reconstruct those boundaries, is to put ourselves in the position of God to jump into the shoes of Creator with all of the pride and the uh, arrogance that one can possibly muster and imagine and say, I'm as good as God. No, more than this is to say, I can do a better job than God and I will redefine this world. And according to things, I will, I will rearrange the kinds, I will reconstruct uh, uh, the boundaries, I will remake things in my image, according to my preferences, according to my um, pagan, sinful, ungodly, rebellious values. So, God has created everything according to its kind. And this brings up the question of essence. What kind of creatures are we then? God said, Verse 26, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. This is what kind of creature we are. We are made in the image of God. We are made after His likeness. But even more uh, foundational to this revelation of Scripture is the fact that we owe our existence not to ourselves, not to an accident, not to mere biology, not to uh, some forces, indeterminate, impersonal forces that were responsible for the organization of the atoms of our being, but instead to God himself. That is to say, we are created creatures. What kind of creatures are we? We are creatures that are created. That's true even by definition. We are created. And inasmuch as we are created, we are dependent. Inasmuch as we are dependent on the Lord, we are accountable to him. We are not autonomous. What does autonomous mean? It means capable of self-rule. We are a law unto ourselves, our own authority. We exist independent of anyone who can tell us what to do. That is not the case. We are contingent. We owe our very life and breath and being, the continence of our mind, our ability to speak, to interact, to maintain relationships, to have any cognizance, anything and everything. We owe it all to our Creator. We are contingent creatures, meaning we depend on the Lord for everything. We are limited <clears throat> by design. We can't do everything. We can't be everything. We can't ascribe to the kind of greatness that God alone holds. There is much uh, that man can do, but he is lying to himself. He is self-delusional that if he thinks because he can improve in one area, that he can be as God. This is a lie from the pit of hell. It goes all the way back to Genesis as well. And when man begins to believe this, he begins to deny the truth that he is contingent, dependent on the Lord, that he is his creature, and therefore he must humbly bow before his maker to learn who he is and how he ought to live in the Lord's world. Man is not limitless, he is finite, he is not God, he is not even free to conceive of God as he would prefer him to be. He is dependent on God to reveal himself in his holy word to him. Exodus chapter 3, Moses learned this lesson. He learned this lesson by direct revelation and also by object lesson in the way God revealed himself. Exodus 3, 2, Moses said, I will turn aside to see the sight, why the bush is, is not burned. Or verse 2, backing up a verse. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this sight, why the bush is not burned. Now this is what we call a theophany. It's a revelation of God taking on this particular form to communicate something of his nature to Moses. And I've mentioned this before, but just to jog your memory, you might, someone might ask you the question, why is it significant that God revealed himself as a fire and the bush was not burned? Well, this is a fire that did not require fuel. This was a fire that burned of its own source. And this is a picture, I submit, of God's self-sufficiency. God needs no other, is dependent on, on no other. In this world, there is no such thing as a fire without fuel, unless that fire is the Lord himself. The Lord was a pillar of fire with no fuel, if you will, that led the people of God through the wilderness. The Lord was the glory, the effervescing power, the magnificent light emanating in, above the tabernacle and in the presence of the temple at the mercy seat, this what we call Shekinah glory, 
<coughs> translation, the original language, the presence of God, a non-contingent fire, if you will. The Lord, self-contained, glorious of his own accord, needing no other, dependent on no other. This is the Lord. This is the difference between creator and creation. However, Moses was soon to learn that he was not of this kind. Moses uh, was of the created kind indeed. And we continue to read in chapter 4, Exodus 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? What does it mean to be human? It means to realize, or it mean, what it means to be human is to, is to realize the truth that you have no capacity in and of yourself. You could not speak if God did not make your mouth. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And so this was a lesson that's embedded in the revelation to Moses. The difference between who we are and who God is. We are created and dependent creatures. God is self-sufficient and needs no other. God is the creator. We are the creature. God has made our mouth, and through this means, He has ordained that we speak. Or God has ordained, in some cases, the messenger Aaron to speak on behalf of him and for Moses and so forth. So, God, so by essence, we are contingent. We are dependent on the Lord for our life and breath and being and everything. Uh, secondly, more specifically, we are made in the image of God, as we've mentioned already. An aspect of humanity by virtue of our creation is the fact that we are made in God's image. What kind of creature are we? We are a creature in some sense like God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 27 again in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man is made in the image of God. What does it mean? To be made in the image of God. Well, if you pick up any you know, uh, number of commentaries on the subject, you can get a vast, wide array of speculation and answers to this question. However, I think there are some things in Scripture that are contextually certain. That is to say, we can know some of what it means to be made in the image of God just by looking at the context. First of all, God has given man a specific task. We'll mention more on this later. But he says in verse 26 of man, let him have or let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you could answer the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? In part this way, man is made in God's image inasmuch as he retains aspects in his being which correspond with his dominion agency. What's different about man? that gives him the ability to take dominion. This is part and parcel to being made in the image of God. In order for man to uh, work uh, as an agent on God's behalf, he must be a reasoning individual. He must be able to uh, judge things, to interact in this world in a, in a way superior to all other creatures. He must have the capacity for comprehending right and wrong. He must be able to discern ethical obligations he must have a higher degree of consciousness 
than those lesser creatures under, the, under him that operate more by instinct than they do according to the dictates of a soul who answers to a higher authority, namely his creator. The creatures give God glory by acting according to their design. But the relationship between a tree and God is far different than a relationship between a human and God. We understand God's word and his ways in a different level and capacity than any of the other creatures can enjoy. And in this sense, I submit, this is evidence being made in the image of God. We are hearing the Lord speak through his word proclaimed even today in a way that the oak tree outside this window will never really understand. The tree nevertheless gives glory to the Lord, but the tree is not capable of taking dominion over all creation and following God's word and his ways and his rules as a sentient uh, being such that humans can. Secondly, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? May I suggest that God has given us the endowments of personhood. God is a trinity, one God and three persons. God the children, the trinity, God the, God the Father, God the Good job. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three. One God in three children. Persons. Excellent, as thanks. One God, three persons. The very nature of God as a person, God the Holy Spirit as a person, God is tripersonal. There are three persons in the one Godhead. And this very essence of personhood is communicated to man, the endowments of personhood, if you will. Man is, is given, is, uh, he is endowed by his creator with a soul and with the capacity for eternal life. There's something unique about the nature of man in that he shares personhood. In this sense, he is made in the image of God. And finally, let me go on to say that the image of God in its purest expression would be the disposition of character, holiness, and obedience resembling Jesus Christ. To put more simply, what is the highest or most glorious expression of the image of God in man? It would be Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was the perfect image of God. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, study it on your own time. Hebrews 1, 3, recall that text as well. The express image uh, the, of the invisible God. Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to see this wide breadth, if you will, of what it means to be made in the image of God because man uh, has shares in the image of God even if he is unredeemed, inasmuch as even in his sin, by God's grace, he still has the endowments of personhood. So therefore, man retains his individual value as being made in the image of God even after the fall in the Bible indicates as much. Genesis 9, we'll see this record as we uh, continue through the book. So aspects of humanity by virtue of creation, first of all, we find what it means to be human in essence. We are contingent creatures. We are made in the image of God. Secondly, and more briefly, we find our agency. That is, what is our position in creation? God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. He also created them in his image for a purpose. Verse 26, God directs man, he says, or he dis displays, reveals his intentions for mankind. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. He goes on in verse 28 to give specific instructions 
that uh, fall under this heading of dominion. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who are we? What is our position in creation? We are under God and we are over all other creatures and we are over the environment. Now, this is a notion that is not widely accepted today, although it seemed quite obvious even by empirical measures. However, how many in our paganizing culture today consider that man is Lord over his environment? I suggest to you that the opposite, the inverse, is often the assumption. Man is a byproduct of his environment. Man is a slave to his environment. Man is the, is the subject of his environment. And pagan environmentalism often assumes this. After all, if Adam's if sub, sub, uh, you know, some prim, primordial soup is responsible for, organize, for creating us in the first place, then, primordial, then we are under primordial soup. And so the order of creation, well not creation, the order of reality, according to the pagan Darwinistic worldview is we are under soup. We are under the Big Bang. We are under our environment. And today you see an even upside down notion of the value of animals elevated in many cases over the value of humans. I continue to suggest to you evidence of this. Take a state like California and answer this question. Are they more likely to outlaw puppy mills or abortion clinics? Is the state of California more likely in their legislature to outlaw puppy mills or abortion clinics? Now, where would you put your money if you wanted to make some? You would put it on puppy mills. Why? Because man is upside down in his values. He doesn't understand the essence of humanity. He doesn't understand in his sin, in his confusion, in his depravity, what it means to be human anymore. Where can he find correction? He can find it in Genesis 1 by asking the question, what is our position in creation? What is our agency? We find under God that we are to have dominion over the rest of the creatures. We find this co-rule or co-regency or rule under God or stewardship as his trustees um, detailed through the rest of the Genesis account, even in Genesis 2 and 3 and beyond, where God gives man special instructions to continue in this manner. On your own time, perhaps a parable that could illustrate this further in the New Testament, Matthew 21, 33 through 41. And this, par- par- uh, this parable hinges on the concept of tenants, those who are acting on behalf of the landlord. They are called to manage well the estate, the household, the affairs, the vineyard of the one who owns these things. And according to how they manage the, uh, the, the property of the owner, they are judged. And, and this is a picture of mankind in his position. He is a tenant of the Lord's world, and he is given the charge to do as God would have him do in relationship to all that he finds, to organize, to order, to conduct his affairs, to provide leadership, direction, cultivation, to uh, rule under God, to be a good steward, to increase and ca- to increase the uh, potential yield of crops and creatures and livestock, um, investing and managing well, husbandry, stewardship, um, even um, agricultural analogies are, and um, applications. Uh, do well to illustrate this concept of dominion, but it's across the board in life. God has given us a certain agency to take dominion, to be a ruler alongside him, to rule on his behalf as a delegate or as a deputy to fulfill his will in creation. Um, Now, this explains 
why God interacts with man and relates to him on the basis of covenant. And this we'll only touch upon briefly, but it's part of the continuity of Scripture. The Scripture is actually arranged according to Old Covenant, New Covenant, another name, Old Testament, New Testament. And there is covenantal language and terms that create the structure of God's relationship uh, with man or God's revelation to man. That is, we understand our duty and our relationship to the Lord in terms of covenant. Well, covenant is often legal language detailing the terms of relationship. And in the case of Scripture, our agency under God, our obligations to Him, His rule, His sovereignty, His authority, and therefore our duty under Him is part and parcel to the framework of the Scriptures themselves. In other words, why, is the, why are the terms of covenant, the relationship between a higher authority and a lesser co-ruler, so important to the structure and so central and basic to the order of Scripture? It's because of agency. It's because of our purpose and position in creation and our calling. These are very basic things about what it means to be human. Aspects of humanity by virtue of creation, essence, and agency. Thirdly, let's move to distinctions. How are we different from each other? Verse 27 gives us an example. Again, Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The nature of God in the Trinity is absolutely unique. It's a powerful revelation we have in Scripture. God is both one and many. He is one God, as we have mentioned before, in three persons. So there's the aspect of the corporate and the individual evident in the very nature of God Himself. So this basic architecture for reality, it might seem abstract and esoteric, but it actually carries down even into the nature of man. Man is an individual, and there's aspects of his uh, corporate relationship with one another. So God gives us categories, directives, uh, definitions, uh, along these lines. lines. Individually, man is different than woman. God has created us male and female. He's provided in the very created order distinctions between these two sexes. We have male and we have female. God has created us as such. Is this idea under assault today? You may laugh at the question. It's uh, self-evident all over the place. Man is rebelling against the basic distinctions of the created order. He's inventing out of whole cloth ways to identify himself. And then culture is demanding that we as a collective affirm any way that someone wants to self-identify. This week, as an absurd example, I heard a guy giving in an interview talking about how he identifies as an infant as a baby. Yes, he wears a diaper and he plays with uh, little Lego toys. He drinks from bottles and no doubt he eats pablum. And he even taught, spoke in an infantile voice. Now, he wasn't consistently infantile across the board. Um, he doesn't hire someone to change his diaper or things like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if you could find someone who would do such a thing. Now, the story of this man is offered in media as an example of a unique way to self-identify that culture would be arrogant to say is wrong in any sense. Who are you to say man cannot be a baby? Who are you to say, oh, the other day I was at work and we were talking about things and, um, you, know, uh, you know, talking about conventions, the way people expect boys and girls to be raised. And just a little tongue-in-cheek, I, I said, you know, I'm raising my kids species neutral because by the time they're a teenager, who knows if they want to identify as a walrus or not. 
And if I condition them to be a human this whole time, that's not fair to them. You know, they may not, they may not want to share the identity of human by the time they reach adulthood. They may want to be a walrus or a caterpillar or something like that. Now, that sounds absurd, does it not? But if you look across the landscape of our culture, the distinctions of what makes us unique and different that God has ascribed to us by His creative right and authority, they are all under assault. And today's absurdity is tomorrow's convention in culture today. Why? Because Genesis 1, we don't believe it as a culture anymore, and it stands as an indictment to our foolishness. Now, God looks in the heavens down at the confusion that our society is demonstrating, and He laughs. He holds us in derision. The categories that God has ascribed, they do not change. He has established His Word forever, and there will only be two genders, if you will. There will be man, and there will be woman, and there will not be 75 others, in spite of what Facebook Facebook would like you to believe. God has created us distinctly male and female. He has separated us within the human collective for particular roles and relationships with one another to honor His Word and to advance His glory and His purposes in creation, procreation, even having children. But more than this, even more important than this, the language of redemption itself hinges upon the definite categories in creation. God has established for us the language of redemption in these distinctions. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is our groom. God is our father and we are his children. Now, if we redefine what it means to be a bride, what it means to be a groom, the relationship between parent and child, what have we done? We've taken a gigantic eraser and we've smudged to a charcoal mess the very language of redemption itself. And we've eliminated from our consciousness the ability to understand the nature of God with respect to us and we will lose the categories of understanding of who we are with respect to Him and what does love and communion and relationship and definition and full flourishing and and the Lord's purposes look like in light of what He has designed. Paul says that God created them male and female, that a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife and so forth. And this mystery is profound. And it does not just refer to some archaic, patriarchal, arbitrary standard of relationships. It refers to Christ and the church. The gospel hinges upon the distinctions that are established in the created order. God does nothing by arbitrary means or by accident. It all speaks to His nature and His character, and therefore it is not to be negotiated. Finally this morning, aspects of humanity by virtue of creation, directives. We have our essence, we have agency, we have distinctions, and we have directives, all detailed for us in Genesis 1. Directives answers the question, how then shall we live? So God gives directives to man in verse 28, right from the beginning. God blessed them and God said to them, here's commandment, instruction, law. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Be fruitful again and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does it mean to be human, truly human? What are aspects of humanity revealed by virtue of creation itself? 
our essence, our agency, distinctions, and directives. To be truly human is to follow the law of God, to live in obedience to His directives, to understand that He is our Lord and we are His subjects, and we march by His orders. We are subject to His commands from day one. Some might errantly assume that the law came in only after man fell, and there are some aspects of law that reveal to us our sin by design. But when it comes to God exercising His authority to command and to deliver His intent for man as His subject, that is a reality pre-fall. There has never been uh, there has never been a time in humanity where we are totally free to do what we want, to be autonomous creatures, to have this libertarian utopia of ultimate self-rule. It has never been, and it will never be. Why? Again, because we are contingent. We owe our, a very existence to our Lord, and so therefore, we're at the mercy of His directives in order to live according to His purposes. And when we do, there is a glorious freedom that we find. In Jesus Christ, we are set free to actually follow God's law again. And when we do so, we find this restoration of original intent flooding into our lives. And this how then shall we live question becomes answered in the law, the directives, the justice, the righteousness, the particular joys of following the Lord as He has intended and designed for us to live. If you don't understand this, Psalm 119, I guarantee, will not be one of your favorite passages in the Bible, nor will you share the affections of the psalmist who exalted the law of God as his meat and as honey and the very thing that got him excited, woke him up in the morning, encouraged him, and gave him direction, ambition, and focus, motivation, goals for his day. The law of God and his directives are essential to humanity. And we rebel against these in our sin, and we are more familiar with rebellion than we are with obedience. But as the Lord works in our lives, changes us by the power of the gospel, our obedience begins to flow forth as a result and evidence of His recreation work in our lives. It is no accident that our salvation is described as recreation. In creation, man was free to follow God's law, and when he did, the earth flourished and so did he. And he lived in this joyful uh, liberty under God of realizing his potential according to God's creative intent and design. And it was a glorious thing indeed for a very brief amount of time, we assume, albeit. Now, this circumstance is recreated in the gospel. It's a new creation. Christ has died for our sins, satisfied the judgment that that transgression of God's law deserved. But He has also regenerated and changed our hearts fundamentally, given us a new nature. A nature now which makes it possible for us to walk in the footsteps that He has laid out from before time again to follow His directives. And when we do, the process, the, goal, the, the progress of sanctification in our lives is a record of glory unto glory and joy added to joy as we begin to live out the way that we were originally designed. And this will culminate, the apex of this glorious vision will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. The last passage, or the last of our passage today, informs us that God, it's just this glorious record of God's provision for man. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, 
you shall have them as food. And he goes on to say that he supplies every creature that relies on food with what is necessary to sustain him. Now, there's a parallel between this and John 6, 35, when Jesus himself presents himself as provision for the lost. He is the bread of life that sustains us in the new creation as born-again believers. He is the one now that is the provision for us, the, the water, the living water in the famine of our sin, the bread of life in this, uh, in this great loss after we have fallen from the Lord's original purposes. So in Christ, provision is made for God to recreate, to reconstruct, to reconcile, and to restore us as the crown of His creation, so to speak, once again. All this is in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't encourage you to spend time meditating upon this. These are revelations in seed form in Genesis. But notice as we continue to study through this book that these seeds are planted, they spring forth, they produce fruit all through the Scripture. The very architecture of reality, the very foundation and essence of what it means to be human is established unequivocally in the beginning and then it begins to unfold until we see the glorious truth of what it means to be human all uh, most um, uh, gloriously manifest in the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Think about these things. Be encouraged to stand in a day when these truths are challenged and pray that God might change you more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Holy Word. We thank You that Your name is a strong tower. The righteous can flee to it and are safe in the day of confusion. We confess, Lord, if there is confusion in our culture, it, much like Babel, is a sign of Your judgment. But we, Lord, nevertheless have means of salvation. When there are winds of doctrine, waves that, drive, that blow across the surface of culture, Lord, hither and to and, and with no direction and no grounding, we nevertheless have an anchor for our souls in Jesus Christ our Lord. We as your church are firmly fitted upon an immovable foundation, our rock, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The chief cornerstone is, and we as living stones fitted according to him and his word will flourish and stand. And even in a day of encroaching darkness, we thank you for this, Lord. I thank you, God, for the revelation of your scriptures all through the course of history and that they are recorded for us in written form. I pray that you would use your scriptures to convict us, Lord, if we ever doubt or if we're ever tempted to redefine the categories of reality according to the, the culture around us. I also pray that you would give us boldness in proclaiming the truth of who we are, who you are, and how we might be reconciled to you in Christ our Lord as we interact in a fallen world. And all of this, that your name might be proclaimed, that you would be glorified, and your people would be sanctified to the praise of your, of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.